Gospel of one, uh, Gospel of John, in chapter one. What we just sang, I just want to read two little verses of it again. The end of the first verse: He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. And then a few verses down, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. That is the theme that we will look at this morning in John chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. We are looking at the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God, His entrance into the world, and all that was brought with it. And so I want to read uh, from John chapter 1 and just verses 14 to 18, and then we will pray together. John writes there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Do you pray with me? Father, as we hear from Your Apostle John, we hear words of grace unmeasured. We Gentiles who were separated commonwealth of Israel, who were without God in the world, who did not have the promises, who did not have the prophets, who had no hope in the world. We have been given the gift of the promised Christ. And this glory, this glory is something that we can barely fathom. It is a mystery that the eternal God, the Son of God, who dwelt in your bosom from all eternity and through whom all things were made, would enter into our very own existence and take upon our very own flesh and shed your very own blood that we might be brought to you. Father, when we hear these truths, do not let our hearts be cold. Father, give us the power of Your Spirit and the illuminating work of Your Spirit so that when we contemplate these truths, our hearts would be warmed and we would be moved to proclaim this glorious truth to all the nations. And we would celebrate it every day with our, in our private, in, in, 
in our homes, with our neighbors, at our workplaces. Father, let us be a people who rejoice in you every day. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thomas Sowell, who's an economist and a philosopher, wrote a very fascinating book that I've been reading through this past week called A Conflict of Visions, Ideological Origins of Political Struggles. It is a book that tries to bring some measure of clarity to our current cultural climate and the divisions that we see that are so stark in our culture. Divisions that people have in matters of politics and ethics and law and economics and the like. And in the book, he argues that a major contributor to this divide are the unspoken assumptions and belief systems we have that are often not discussed. He calls these unspoken assumptions visions. And when he uses this language, he is very much referring to what Christian thinkers and Christian commentaries refer to as a worldview. A worldview, or as Sowell puts it, a vision, is a set of beliefs and values that inform the way we see the world and the way that we live in it. So, for example, a Christian has a supernatural worldview, which means that we believe in things that cannot be seen. We believe in God. We believe in heaven and in hell. We believe in the resurrection. We believe in angels. And we believe that these unseen supernatural realities have a very real effect on our lives now. These are not just abstract beliefs that have no connection to the way that we live in the present now. The choices that we make are determined by this very worldview. So a Christian missionary will make the choice to go into a dangerous country, a country that may in fact be directly hostile to the gospel, And he or she will go into this country and preach the gospel because he or she believes that the message has eternal importance. And that even if he is preaching this gospel, and if he were to be persecuted and killed, he would indeed be blessed because he believes in the resurrection of Christ. Someone who is not a Christian would never do such a thing. Not only because they don't believe in the gospel message, but because they don't believe in the resurrection. Their own lives is that which they must preserve at all cost. And so they will not give their lives for something of that nature. Now, of course, there are others with Worldviews that are supernatural, like in, in, in the Islamic faith, for example. People will die for that very same reality, a promise of paradise. The point being is that the worldview is what informs their very 
actions and decisions, and our actions and decisions. Well, Soul, in his book, argues that there are two broadly defined visions in our culture. And these visions are in conflict with each other for the very fact that they're complete opposites of one another. I'm not going to go into the details of each. I would recommend that book. It is a very enlightening book. But what I do want to point out is what I found to be a good and a right and helpful observation that he made. Namely, that the conflict between the two different visions, the two different ways of seeing the world, is largely defined by how we view human nature. How we see human nature. You see, on the one hand, there are those who see human nature as corrupt and morally limited and fixed. This is what Soul calls the constrained vision. Human nature is inherently flawed in this view. And because of its very nature, it is limited. It is not like God. It is not all-knowing. It is not all-powerful, but it is limited by virtue of being created. Moreover, what is perhaps the most vital thing to understand is that human nature, in this view, cannot be changed. It is fixed this way. And so, as a result of this view of human nature, when it comes to moral and social challenges, the goal is not to change someone's nature, but to create an environment that maximizes human flourishing while recognizing the limited possibilities. This view, for example, will just assume there's always going to be war. There's not going to be a day when every country in the world comes to peace with one another and we live in a utopia. Because human nature is flawed. On the other hand, there are those who see human nature as either mostly good or corrupt yet changeable. This is what Soul calls the unconstrained vision. Human nature in this view may indeed have its flaws, but it can be changed through a very natural process. It can be changed with things like more education. It can be changed with things like economic stability. And it can be changed by the cultivation of a virtuous character. The human power of reason and the intellect in this view is very much like a Messiah. The solution to many of the world's problems is either to educate people better or to invest power in the most well-educated of each society. And then through this collective effort, human nature can be saved. Now, I bring this up because the Bible is not silent on this issue. But, it doesn't side with one side over the other. What we saw just last week in the Gospel of John is that Scripture speaks very clearly about what human nature is like. 
human nature, according to the Bible, is indeed corrupt. The heart's desires are evil. And even when men do things that are morally good, sin is always present in the heart. Many of Jesus' Jewish contemporaries, for example, were known for their outward morality. They were not just people who were running rampant in outward sin. They were very religious. They prayed. They worshipped at the temple and at the synagogues. They believed in education through the rabbis. They gave to the poor of their own resources. But what Jesus exposed in His Jewish contemporaries, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, was that their outward morality was always accompanied by an inward hypocrisy. Yes, they gave to the poor, but they gave in a very public manner so that people would see them giving and praise them for how good they truly were. Their hearts were full of pride and self-righteousness. And Jesus and God is not simply concerned with outward morality. He is concerned with the inward man. What is in every human heart. And just like Jesus' Jewish contemporaries, so also is it the same for us today. Wherever there is outward morality... Sin is always lurking within the heart. Because of sin, the Bible says that we have all gone astray and our natures are inherently flawed and corrupt. But unlike the constrained vision of things that Soul described, the corruption of human nature is in fact not irreversible. It can be changed. We are not left in utter hopelessness. But unlike the unconstrained view, that change does not come through very natural processes. It doesn't come through more education. And it doesn't come through better health care. And it doesn't come through financial stability. It won't come through any political revolutions. In fact, all of the human ingenuity of the world cannot and will not be able to discover a solution to the problem of evil hearts. What Scripture tells us is that the solution comes through the power of the grace of God. Grace has the power to fundamentally remake a person. Grace has the power to make a violent Saul into a missionary Paul. Grace has the power to change an abusive husband into a self-sacrificing and servant husband. Grace has the power to turn a drunk into a spirit-filled evangelist. And grace... Grace even has the power to turn a dead human corpse into a living body. It is the power of grace and grace alone that can actually remake human nature and remake our fallen hearts. 
And what we find in the Gospel of John this morning is the very reason why grace can do this. Grace can transform human nature because of the Incarnation. The Son of God taking on human flesh. God becoming man. So far in John's Gospel, we have seen the point being made that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, that in Him is life, that He is the light of revelation to men, and that by believing in Him, we can become children of God. We, we get the privilege of becoming children of God who are born of God. And now, in these last verses of this introductory section we've been working through, these 18 verses, John teaches us how it can even be possible that sinful human beings like you and me can become children of God. And everything we find, everything is based on the mysterious reality of the Incarnation. The Word became flesh. In the Incarnation, Something new, drastically new, occurred in the world. Before Jesus came, people knew about the grace of God. People sang about the grace of God. The Israelites knew and celebrated the grace of God. They had experienced the grace of God through deliverances from their enemies. They had experienced the grace of God when through Moses He revealed His law to them, and they received His promises. They had experienced the grace of God when they were promised that their sins were forgiven through the sacrificial system that was instituted. But nevertheless, their experience of grace was only partial. It was a shadow, in a sense, or a type that was simply mediated. The forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial system was not the fullness of the grace of God. It did not provide the means of truly understanding and seeing the extent and the power, the full power of the grace of God. It was very much like only being able to see someone's shadow and not their entire person. You think, of, you think of shadows, and most everyone, especially Americans who know anything about the NBA and the history of the NBA and one very famous Michael Jordan, most everyone could see Jordan's shadow of his face. And they would know, this is Michael Jordan. But they're not actually seeing the fullness of Michael Jordan. Well, that's very much like what the Old Covenant was like. It was a system of shadows. There was a foretaste of grace, but the fullness had not yet come. In the Incarnation, all of that changed. Because when the Word became flesh, the fullness of grace, not a shadow, the fullness of grace was seen in a body. And when the Word became flesh, Grace actually met man. 
it, in a sense, touched him in a person. The incarnation provides us with the explanation of how the grace of God can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. How it can renew our natures and make us into new creations. So that is what I want us to see this morning. How the grace of God can come to us. Beginning in verse 14, we see that grace comes to us first in a man. John writes, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, of course, the same Word that He has been speaking of from the very beginning of this Gospel in the first three verses. The Word is the name that John uses for Jesus. And as we saw in those first three verses several weeks ago, John clearly states that Jesus as the Word is God. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in verse 14, John is telling us that this eternal Word, God Himself in the person of His Son, became flesh. He's not saying that Jesus, that God, simply appeared in a human form like a ghost. Nor is He saying that in the incarnation, Jesus ceased to be God. He is saying that in Jesus, something utterly unique has happened in the world. The Son of God, without ceasing to be God, entered into our very own existence. He clothed Himself, as it were, with our very nature. And the Son of God became the God-man. Moreover, John goes on to say, He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. John uses this language, the word dwelling among us. He does so very intentionally. The word dwelt here literally has the idea of living in a tent or in a tabernacle. John is saying that the word tabernacled among us. And so what he is doing is drawing our minds back to the book of Exodus where the Lord commanded the Israelites to build for Himself a tabernacle. And the tabernacle was to be the place where God would make His presence dwell among His people. Wherever the tabernacle went, the people of God were to follow because it was the representation of God's presence leading His people through the wilderness. John is saying, What the tabernacle pictured, what it was only a shadow of, is now seen in its fullness in the person of Christ. In Jesus, the presence of God is with His people fully in body. Which is why John also says, and we have seen His 
glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here too, just like dwelling among us, here too our minds recall the book of Exodus, particularly chapters 33 and 34. In those chapters, we just read some of the verses earlier, we find Moses begging the Lord to allow him to see the glory of God. And you remember what the Lord said to Moses? We read it just a little bit ago. He said to Moses, You cannot see my face. For man cannot see my face and live. In other words, he cannot see the fullness of my glory and live. But he tells Moses that he will allow him to see his back, which is a way of saying, you can see a partial view of my glory. And then in chapter 34, the Lord causes His glory to pass by Moses. And when it does, the Lord proclaimed His name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. John chapter 1, verse 14, what John is telling us is that what could not be seen by Moses was seen in Jesus. We have seen His glory. Not only as He entered into our existence in frailty, as an infant, as a child, in weakness, but most especially on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the disciples were in His presence and He was completely transformed and the fullness of His glory was seen. John says, now we have seen His glory. And what was only proclaimed, the Lord is gracious and that the Lord is true, or as the ESV puts it, that the Lord is faithful. What was only proclaimed is now seen in the person of Christ. All of the shadows, all of the mere glimpses of God's grace and power in the Old Testament, as great and as awesome as they were, they were mighty displays of power and grace. The the, the mountain of Sinai thundering with the power of God and the lightning bolts and the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud God manifested His power and glory to the people of God in the Old Testament. But these were but glimpses of something even more. And now what was only a glimpse has become and has reached its climax in Christ. And in Christ, the grace of God has come to man in a man Himself. Second, grace not only comes to us in a man, it comes to us in fullness. In verse 15, John gives a kind of parenthetical note about the witness of John the Baptist. And we're going to look a little bit more at that next week when we actually come to John the Baptist. But then he goes on to say in verse 16, and verse 16 is actually carrying the thought of verse 14 forward. 
And he says in verse 16, for from His fullness, that is the, the overflowing abundance of grace and truth that fills Christ. From His fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Now in some of your Bibles, maybe most of your Bibles, at the end of this verse, you have a note. And it tells you that instead of grace upon grace, this could also be read as grace in place of grace. Grace in place of grace, which I think is actually more accurate. What John is saying is that the grace that is found in the fullness of Christ has replaced the grace that was found under the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was indeed an act of grace. When God gave the law through Moses, He was gracious in revealing His will. When God proclaimed His name to Moses, He revealed His gracious character. When He dwelt among the people of Israel in the tabernacle, this too was an act of grace. God leading His people in the wilderness into the promised land. This too was an act of grace. But as I said just a little bit ago, all of these acts of grace were only shadows pointing forward to a better day to come. A day when the fullness of God's grace and promises would be seen. And John is saying here in this verse, that day has arrived. Now, the reason I'm saying that that's what he means here, grace in place of grace, is because of the explanation he gives in verse 17. If you look again at verse 17. Verse 17 is further explaining the end of verse 16. He says in verse 17, for explanation, because we all have received grace upon grace, grace in place of grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was only a teacher. Or as Paul puts it in Galatians, it was a kind of schoolmaster preparing the Israelites for the future promises of God. Moreover, the law was given through a mediator, Moses. And Moses himself was only a prophet who taught the Israelites to be looking forward to an even greater prophet to come. So he is not the climax of God's revelation. And he is not the climax of God's grace to his people. He himself, through his teaching, through the law, is pointing the people forward to what is to come. The contrast in verse 17 is between the gracious covenant that was given through Moses, again, a covenant that pointed forward, and the covenant that came in the person of Jesus and in which the fullness of the grace of God was seen. 
That is why John says, we have all received grace in place of grace. A better day has arrived with a better covenant and a better mediator between God and man. The God-man, Christ Jesus. And this is in fact the whole argument of the author of Hebrews. When you read through the, the letter to Hebrews, this is his argument. That through Christ, a better covenant has come. And with it, with Christ, supreme and infinite grace, overflowing grace, the fullness of grace to His people. So the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. Arguing that Jesus was made a great high priest with an oath, the author says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Hebrews 8, 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. John is telling us in the beginning of his Gospel that a day of overflowing grace has arrived. The shadows have passed. And the substance is now in Christ and is seen in Him. Third, and lastly, grace not only comes to us in a man, and it not only comes to us in fullness, but it is made known to us with all clarity in Christ. John says in verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. There is so much that could be said about what what is stated here in John 1.18. An entire sermon could be preached on it. Entire books have been written on it. But I want to restrict my comments to this last clause he has where he says, He has made Him known. John is concluding this whole beginning section by alluding back to where he began. Jesus was said to be the Word, and as the Word, He was God. Then in verse 18, He is called the only God. Jesus was said to be the Word who was with God in the beginning, and here He says He was at the Father's side, or or literally He was in the bosom of 
the Father. There was an intimate relationship and is between them. And because Jesus is both God and knows the Father like no one else, He has the ability and the authority to reveal God to us with all clarity. That is what He did. He made Him known. Or more literally, He explained Him to us. And when He explained Him, He did so with everything He said and did. And what He revealed to us was not an impersonal God who cares nothing for us. It was not a God who sits in heaven and who is indifferent to our experience and who is indifferent to our flaws and our sinfulness. It was a God who loves sinners so much that He would send His Son to shed His blood for them. He gave His own life. That is the love and the grace of God that is revealed through Christ. That is the clarity with which God speaks to the world. You have have any questions about how gracious and loving God is? He dies for you. Grace, God, is not intended to be some vague doctrine or concept that floats in the air and has no connection to our experience. It is not an abstraction. It's not unrelated to us and our experiences. And it's not just some nice thought about the forgiveness of sins and heaven. It is an actual action of God that was manifested in the world in real flesh and blood. It is God's loving hand breaking into our own existence and freeing us from the grasp of sin. When you see Christ hanging on the cross, you are seeing the grace of God in action. When Jesus Christ entered into the world with a mission to glorify God by giving His life as a ransom for His people, grace was not something that followed after Him. It was not something that He pointed to. He Himself was grace. And in Him, grace in all of its fullness is found. To have Jesus is to have grace. And to know Jesus is to know grace. This is the very reason why John says the fullness of grace was in Him. And it overflowed to His people. They received out of the fullness grace in place of grace. So friends, what that means for you is that you can know the grace of God. You can taste it. You can sing it. You can experience it. You can cling to it. If you but look to Christ. When you see Jesus and the Spirit of God illuminates your eyes and you see Him in His fullness through His Word revealed to you, you are seeing and experiencing the grace of 
God. And in His Word, He tells us to His people that this very grace makes you like Christ. It is from this fullness that our natures, that we need to be transformed. Our hearts, that we need to be made new, is indeed made new. The reason, again, our very existence can become something that it could not before is because Jesus has come into our existence and shared our very experiences. And now as He has ascended into heaven, we are not worse off. It is not because we cannot physically, visibly see Christ now that we have any less of an experience. Jesus told His disciples, it is better for you that I go. Because when I go, I will send to you the Holy Spirit of God. We know God now and can commune with God and commune with Christ through the power of His Spirit. That is the promise He gives to you as the people of God. When you are afflicted, and when you suffer, and when you have anxieties, and when you are unsure of the future, the Word of God calls us to look to Christ because in Christ is the fullness of grace to be found and the sure and the better promises to be found in Him. So friends, in your experiences, and in your trials, and in your day-to-day lives, do not go one day without fixing your eyes upon Christ. As the hymnist wrote, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in Christ we have grace 